0: Andrew's worked pretty hard tonight. We've got a lot of, a lot of stuff to, to show. So he's going to start off with a, a presentation. And then uh, we're going to cut to Martine. He's also here, Martine Chadwick, she's our chief sonographer. And her son has come in, not doing his homework. And we're going to do some live scanning uh, with, uh, with her son. And then I'm going to talk about some cases and things. So hopefully we'll, we'll fill in an hour or so, and it uh, should be fun. But it's a, a free for all. So hands up, got any questions, please don't, don't be, uh, feel like you can't interrupt or, or ask a question. So over to Andrew.
1: Yeah, thanks David. Yeah, so definitely um, happy to make it really interactive and stop for questions because we're going to be moving around a bit, different parts of the stage, different screens. So, um, happy to have some discussion on that. So, our topic is soft tissue injury to image or not to image. I guess a bit challenging given our sponsors tonight. Um, I'm in the fortunate position having worked in uh, some elite sport and currently with Hawthorne Football Club and so we can scan whatever we like, whenever we like. So, we'll have lots of, lots of nice images and we've got lots of um, understanding of soft tissue injuries that's not so easy to get in the, in the community. So, while we're still in Hawthorne Colors, an amazing piece of uh, amazing footballer, we're gonna work through the lower limb, particularly with our soft tissue injuries today. Things like, things that you might see, things that we might see, plantar fascia, Achilles, calf, hamstrings. I want to talk about the ultimate soft tissue, the brain, just get a little plug in for concussion management at the end. I want to help you make an an appropriate imaging choice. I want to give you some tips to management, although that may well come out in our discussion. So this is last year's AFL injury survey and we can see that sort of soft tissue injuries form a substantial part of what we're talking about. You could argue that a lot of these are bony and joint as well. But the main problem with soft tissue injuries is actually in the recurrence situation. So you can see even more highly represented in our recurrent injuries are our soft tissue injuries. Hamstrings even as high as 30% recurrence (laughs) rates. So it's the most common injury with a very high recurrence rate. And so it's obviously a serious problem and a serious problem to us with our athletes. Um, When you're making a clinical assessment it really helps me if I think about uh, the demographics of the athletes, the sports they're involved in, the positions they play. The number one risk factor is a past history of a soft tissue injury. But if you've got a ballet dancer they get different hamstring injuries to sprinters and the like. Um, the position on they play on the ground may be different. I don't think Sam Mitchell gets anywhere near fast enough to get a hamstring strain <laughs> and yet Cyril's obviously had several. Um, the timing of, of the injury and its presentation is important. Is there a delayed presentation or is there an acute injury? <laughs> the mechanism and again hamstrings tend to be sprints and stretches. We're lucky enough to, access, to have access now to live video on the bench so we Usually, one doctor goes onto the field, the other goes to the video, and we look at the mechanism and try and work out what's happening. We assess their pain, their swelling, and dysfunction. Um, this is a pretty nasty sort of ecchymosis after a hamstring tear. And this, we look for the weather, site of the injury, swelling, and think about the tissue characteristics as well. Certainly, the physios are a better used to getting their hands on. What's it feel like? Is there a local fluctuant collection or, uh, or is it a more diffuse feeling? Um, think about their function and that's what's important to us on the sideline. So what's their flexibility like with a stretch? How can they contract and then can they move? So that's a basic sort of assessment we'll go through at the time. On Monday, I had a very busy day at Hawthorne on Monday, and we did lots of imaging. Um, soft tissue injuries, x rays in brackets, probably because we're excluding bony injuries. Although, like in this ultrasound, shows myositis of in a thigh on ultrasound, um, and usually appears earlier on ultrasound than, than x rays, isn't that right, Martin? So, ultrasound's a sensitive test to do for that anyway. And you can get some information about soft tissue injuries from the soft tissue shadows and the interfaces. But the, what we're going to talk about tonight, soft tissue imaging, is really about ultrasound and MRI scan. Um, in the rooms at, at Hawthorne, we have access to an ultrasound and, in fact, a radiologist. so we will often scan them um, during the game to have a look at what's going on and obviously in these athletes there's a lot of people involved, this is me but there's, te- there's other doctors, physios, coaches, exercise physiologists, trainers and psychologists who all have an input into management of these soft tissue injuries and yes psychologists are a big part of that uh, rehabilitation. So what do we want from imaging? Well clearly a diagnosis that's pretty straightforward um, but we probably won't and this is going to help you choose your um, imaging as well. What what do you want? What do you need? What what are you going to get from a prognosis? How long is the player going to be out? Can they return to the field? All those sorts of things. They might be able to return an ultrasound or an MRI might help you understand their capabilities. What can they do? can guide treatment, certainly assess healing. We're certainly using that a lot more um, to help as we understand it, as we get more imaging to help our return to play decisions or return to activity, or return to work. Um, Soft tissue injuries is all about understanding the muscle architecture. And usually at the interfaces is where we're most vulnerable to injuries. And there are obviously several interfaces at different layers of the muscle. On ultrasound we can also see these interfaces. Um, Subcutaneous tissue, the fascial layers, the muscles, the tendons, and then right down to the bone down here so again understand the anatomy and understand what you're looking at in terms of the structure just some general comments about soft tissue management there's no magic I don't believe there's any magic there's nothing hard I don't believe there's any evidence supporting injections of anything I don't stretch them there was a really nice study once done with massage suggesting that massage may have a role, the timing of the massage may be interesting, and it's not hasn't been replicated, that sort of study. Mine is all about strengthening progressive loading, strengthening the structures nearby, and then a functional return to activity program. I'll talk a bit more about management in the specific episodes, but that's some general sort of things. So I think we'll go to Martine now, and we'll work from the bottom up, but the typical sort of some common soft tissue pathologies we might see. And obviously one that might walk into your room or hobble into your room might be, some, might be a plantar fasciitis. We'll just turn
0: okay. mm. C- can we get these lights down a little bit? It might just help. We can see them not too bad. <coughs> That's why Martin's orientating here. So, this is how we, we image the plantar fascia. So, we have the patient lying flat on their tummy, feet dangling over the back of the, um, the foot, and of course, the probe is coming down from this way. So, this is the skin superficially. This is the plantar fascia here, and this is the bone, underlying bone. So, it's sort of upside down compared to an MRI scan. So, that's what you got, Martin.
2: Most of path for our patients immediately displaced on the medial band. Jeremy's got a reasonably prominent medial band in that you can see it coming up this way. It's probably I'll just turn the gain up. Can, can everyone see that image? Is it all right? Yeah. yeah.
0: So this, so this is the band here, and um, so as you know, the the plantar ligament or we call it a fascia, but it's really a ligament. So it supports the longitudinal arch of the foot, and there's there's really three bands. There's sort of what we call the, the lateral, the medial, and the central, which is kind of the main one, but a lot of people call the central one the, the medial one, because that's the dominant one, and supports the longitudinal arch. And of course, if it gets overloaded through excessive uh, walking and running things, and I'm sure Joe will talk about this in a minute, they tend to get overload and thickening, and um, microscopic tearing of some of these, these filaments can lead to bigger tears, some delaminations and partial tearing. And it's always around about the attachment here, so that's why your patients will come in with, with heel pain, so it's right there, it's the attachment of that plantar fascia underneath the foot. And with time, traction of this, of this plantar fascia or plantar ligament really, can lead to the formations of spurs. And so in the old days, we used to uh, talk about plantar spurs. We know that doesn't really mean anything, and perhaps Jay, we talk about that in a minute. Um, but what we tend to see is failure of this ligament, if you like, it's usually the undersurface fibers here that fail, um, we get partial tearing, sometimes you can rip the whole thing and we tend to see inflammation around it. The rest of the ligament tends to be okay, um, but that's the, the major site pathology. Is that fair, Jeremy?
1: Yeah, and uh, Martin was just gonna just put on the color doppler, the set component of that to look for evidence of increased blood flow in this area as well. Do
0: I we push um, the color box?
1: Yep. Oh, she hasn't got it. There we okay. go there. So if we're looking for so hyperemia increased blood flow.
0: So this is a cheat thing, so sometimes you might see on your ultrasound you might see some blood vessels, some, some red or blue flashing lights and that's an in indication to us that there is hyperemia or inflammation in that region because we have these blood vessels that sort of engage or encase the tendon or the ligament and what they tend to do is take, take along sensitised nerves with them and that's why it gets, becomes quite tender uh, to, to touch and becomes quite painful.
1: So David, uh, this is a typical plantar fascial thickening here, we can see Hypoechoic, it's slightly darker, and it's about what 50 mils above. 4.6,
2: I'd say. Okay. Oh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. I've cut it off the slide, but uh, <laughs> and the normal's around 30, um, 30 mils, I guess. So that's what we're looking at. And obviously, you can compare the other side very easily with ultrasound. Um, David talked about a spur that we often ignore. Interestingly, the spur is always on the the deep aspect of the ligament. It's not part of the ligament it's actually on the deep aspect of the ligament. I'm starting to appreciate that they may actually be problematic because again MRIs, we've noticed some impingement of the fascia, a bit like a Haglund's at the Achilles the spur seems to impinge on the deep aspect of the fascia and you can get some inflammation around the tip of the spur so we're just retracting a little bit and thinking maybe the spur might cause a bit of pathology and they might be the ones that actually do well with some cortisone in and around that area mm-hmm.
0: and, and, to, and to be fair on that sometimes if we do an mri of these we obviously don't see the we see the bone the surface of the bone with ultrasound but if we do an mri sometimes those spurs or the underlying is edematous it's got bright signal on yeah. mri and so i think in those circumstances they're likely to be
1: symptomatic yeah that's right and the the, the bone edema of mri again very rarely do you do it but if they're not responding You might think about an MRI and seeing that bone edema in the calcaneum is going to give you, that's your prognostic information, your delayed recovery. The key sign is the sort of first thing in the morning, how long, and that's what I use, that's my key measure for patients, how long is it before they can get their foot to the floor. Um, We see tears in the plantar fascia, like this. Um, and
0: having just said we always see them just underneath here, it's nice that we're showing at one superficial here, just to, just to challenge us. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Thanks, <right>. Martin. <laughs> That's right. And, That's I, and I
1: think, in fact, the reason the deep ones is pro- possibly some impingement of those, that spur anyway. Yeah. So, um, um, again, here's a, here's a more, maybe more typical for a really chronic, thick fascia in the hypo region, tear. At this deep surface, we wonder whether there's a spur extending out there. Ultrasound can't show us around the back there. Could that be impinging on that? Um, I guess we're we're an AFL um, venue and whatever. So talk about AFL footballers. Robert Harvey's most famous for jumping off a, a table to cause a rupture of his plantar fascia. I know that St Kilda now um, have a procedure with their plantar fascias where they inject them until they rupture. So, they put local anaesthetic, keep training and they actually rupture um, and often often, um, relieves their symptoms. It's a bit uncontrolled and I've certainly had a case of someone forming a scar fibroma that caused the problems. Um, this is a, a different injury to... <laughs> it's a distal medial band. Yeah, so, so heels probably up. Yeah, so
0: the heel, yeah. heel would be down this end here. That's and this, right. is, this is an atypical Here's plantar fasciosa. Yeah. So this is the plantar ligament fascia along here. And this is an atypical plantar fasciosis. So 90% of the cases we see close to the heel, but sometimes they're a little bit further along the foot. And of course, you know, that, that band, that strut can break down anywhere along the length.
1: So we can see on the normal on Martin Davidson in front of it here, that's the, no. this is the same sort of area we're talking about. And this is where you might see the fibromas, the lumps, Is it Lederhausen's disease or the lumps within the fascia? Still not clearly understood what causes them. They can have multiple they can be symptomatic or asymptomatic. Usually respond to local treatment and padding and the like. And obviously know your anatomy you can see tendon muscle underlying the feather sort of structure of the muscle. Um, This is the point I want to make about plantar fasciitis is look for the calf wasting. if they've had it for any period of time, they'll always have it. And so to me, if I see that, that's often that's the target of my rehabilitation. Um, as well as their pain management, I want to make sure that calf comes back to normal. So how do we treat it? Well, this is evidence-based, the, the latest study, Michael Rathleff, 2014. Similar to our Achilles, heavy load strength training um, in patients with plantar fasciitis. So get them to work. And this is the sort of exercise we do. By rolling a towel, we've wound up the plantar fascia, we've tightened it through there, and we're doing our calf raises off the back of a step. Now, some of these patients will be slightly older, they might have OA in their joint here, so that's why we've got a towel, we can adjust that thickness.
2: How far you roll that towel?
1: It depends, you get it to the range of motion that they can tolerate, and that's why the towels there's that variation because as I said older patients have, might have a stiff first mtp joint and can't tolerate extreme dorsiflexion so
2: the towel is in the front the commonest one you said is that towards the end there
0: so you roll it up to the end or you start the towel by keeping the heel at that particular point so, I'm, so the pain is
2: here now in the heel. so are you
1: going to yeah. keep the towel here and then start rolling no no, it no 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 the towel is the, the pure function of the towel is to dorsiflex the first ray and tighten the plantar fascia.
2: So you drop the heel down?
1: Yep. Here we go. Heel and raise. So
2: do we about 15 times, ten times or?
1: Michael Rathleff is 3 by 15 I think, as tolerated. He works them hard. Um, so, there's the paper. You can search it. Um, Rathleff, plantar fascia. We used to tell the patients to roll their foot on a cold bottle. Mm-hmm. Is that not part of the recommendations anymore? Um, okay. Evidence. Okay. This is the evidence. There's no evidence behind those sorts okay. of treatment. Okay. This is this is the only okay. So, okay. sort of evidence. Okay. Yeah. I,
3: I'm just wondering the etiology of this might mm-hmm. uh, differ. Does it from the elite athletes in civilian life? As I more often see, sure. three factors: uh, overweight. Uh, hard-soled shoes and walking on concrete, you know, like people working in those situations. And
1: there's probably, um, metabolic, there's definitely metabolic factors in that, like yeah. in the tendinopathies. So definitely metabolic, diabetes, they all play a significant role in that in that population. Um, hard flaws is more about symptoms than etiology. Um, as I said, in that group, you're still going to look for this. And in fact, that's often a bigger problem in this. Yeah. So activity for everyone, we're going to get everyone strong. Um, so we might, we've got a lot to move on. So we'll move up the leg. Um, Can
3: I just make one comment about steroid injections of mm-hmm. I i I've had very good feedback from patients in that area. I read a review from a Professor of Rheumatology at Cabrini, a New England Journal a number of years ago that virtually said nothing works and it's almost self-limiting. And I wonder about that too a little bit, But I've had really good feedback with steroid injections in this area um, when they're severe enough.
1: Um, that's what I think is, when, the, when I talked about the spur and the inflammation, the edema that David sees on the MRI, yeah. I think if you've got targeted cases, as a general rule, uh, no, the evidence behind cortisone for plantar fasciitis doesn't support it, as yeah. a general rule. But there are specific situations. I mean, I use radial shockwave therapy as well. Does the evidence support that? Depends what you read. Yeah. Sometimes you ha- you you've got someone there in pain. You've got to deal with their pain. I can't get them to exercise in that pain necessarily. Yeah. We've got to work our way around it. <coughs> and if it's steroid, then it's steroid. We
3: Exactly. But it's not why I don't even image them routinely. Now, but severe sure. enough inject, further problems then you image. I mean, sure. but,
0: but Jay, if you have one of your footballers who had a important game this weekend and had some plantar fasciitis, this, this is a good long-term, wouldn't you be inclined to give them a little bit of cortisone just to get them through the game? So, so it's good short-term um, relief, is that? I
1: might, I might, and also um, radial shockwave therapy can provide good short, short-term relief or analgesia as well. So, yeah, there are options. Um, Yeah, we certainly use local anaesthetic to play in this situation. As I said, St Kilda went through the thing where they're injecting them and letting them rupture. Um, Just keep keep going, they've got no pain and eventually the fascia ruptures and that solves the problem. So So it's one situation where you probably don't care if it does tear.
0: So, so in fact, cortisone, we know there's good information coming out that cortisone injections can increase the likelihood of a rupture of, of ligaments and tendons and things. So, so if you want to take a scenario in terms of trying to rupture the plantar fascia, then cortisone injections may well help that case. Yeah.
2: Will the cortisone injection be better for the impingement, whereas our That's PRP right.
0: or blood injections for the one where you actually have the, the uh, tears in the fibres be more appropriate because you are inducing
2: inflammation
1: Talking to the wrong person about blood injections. Well, I was there just saying we had a nice zero, case of... There is zero evidence in soft tissue that supports the use of blood or PRP or anything like that. This
3: was previously referred
1: to <coughs> the and, yeah, is, No, none of you are using it. Not the evidence is not there. I'm so, I'm I'm the skeptic around town on this one. Oh audience. God, Karen Rick,
0: Rick <laughs> Kahn's been reincarnated here <laughs> at AFL House,
1: That's God. A, shazam. Um, Achilles rupture. If they're coming to Martine, they probably shouldn't come to Martine really. Um, the history is usually pretty, key, pretty significant. They can happen in the AFL population, they can have it in the general population. Tenderness, defect, oh, Simmons, that's changed somehow, Simmons' test and Thompson's tests. So lie them on their front, we can see the swelling, we can see the ankle sitting at 90 degrees rather than plantigrade. If we squeeze their calf, they'll get no movement or little movement little plantar flexion. So hopefully they don't even get to ultrasound but fun sometimes we get to have a look at them. Um, mm. Oh I don't have my rupture, hang on I might just skip through to the rupture. Here's, uh, here's my rupture. Mm. So really disorganised, defect here, heel down here. This is an Achilles, in a long section of an Achilles, it's lost tension about what you say wouldn't you it looks it looks thickened so it's probably previously degenerate
0: hmm. well maybe martin could show us what, it, what a normal Achilles looks yeah, like with ultrasound so that just to orientate ourselves here so this is the obviously the calcaneus here at the back and then martin's going to show us the Achilles tendon where it inserts onto the back of the calcaneus and it's so Martin before we go and you can see the insertion is really it's not onto the top of the calcaneus it's really got quite a broad insertion goes almost halfway down the back of the uh, the calcaneus. It's got kind of a long, broad attachment and a very firm attachment. So when we're talking about avulsions as, as Dr. Jowett just has been, they usually rupture in the mid-substance. So this is the calcaneus here. This is the, the killer, which is pretty good, unless you've got haglans or something that, that's causing these fibers to fray and, and tear. They usually tear in the mid-substance. So some, some of the things the surgeons like to know is you know is how far this is from the, from the calcaneus. What's the condition of the tendon? Is it a nice egogenic fibrillar pattern? Was there underlying tendinopathy? And there almost always is. Um, and sorry, Martin, will, will take us through the through what it looks like. Oh, Martin.
2: Yeah, So basically for us, it's insertion is relevant. I think more, I have a bent for rheumatology. So um changes here uh, are inflammatory usually. Um, as you get over to the mid portion of the tendon, this is where we look predominantly in our group, as much as you can get a rupture, a lot of our central thought processes come to tendon delamination in layering ideas, paratenon changes, and then involvement of edema and retrocalcaneal bursitis, or in fact, um, superficial changes as well. So, whereas some places may just give you an image of the tendon, that becomes probably the, a smaller component of what we start to look for in ideas of change. So on the bigger screen over there, the patient who has that, we've scanned routinely, has focal almost paratendinosis there. It's like a scar tissue on the deep surface of the tendon. And that's something that we've been monitoring because it's actually causing problems in their game. Um, the other, the next slide shows the fibers with the delaminated split so we would look through these fibers through here and we look for the level of the change. It's a nice picture and it shows how you <coughs> have not get a complete <coughs> splitting. And even though I shouldn't say that, but post-PRP changes that are lovely and granulated. Anyway, I didn't say that. But anyway, maybe <laughs> DC changes. And anyway, and as you go distally, um, oh sorry, probably medially to that, you can see um, plantaris. He's got a
0: mm. So, which is, as you know, plantaris is an extra tendon. Usually it runs on the medial <laughs> side of, of the um, Achilles and goes and inserts onto the medial calcaneus. Yeah, it's just yeah. And that in itself can have its own isolated problems. Just. Um, so, so just
1: the plantaris is really, it's actually what Nick Natt he had operated on to help him return to sport. Um, so, there's a Swedish surgeon who's obsessed with plantar- plantaris as <coughs> the cause of a lot of this mid-Achilles medial pain.
0: So, so just a couple of points. Let's just go transverse on that, Martin. So if you think about the Achilles, it's, it's made up, it's a continuity of the calf muscles. So it's basically the, the gastrox and the sleal muscles. And as they come down to form a tendon, which attaches onto the bone, undergo sort of a corkscrew. They sort of rotate upon themselves. And what we can now do with high resolution ultrasound is we can kind of identify which of the, the tendon fibrils con- that are continuous with the muscle. So, for example, we know that the medial. Uh, so just go transverse, Martin. So, yeah. So medial gastrocnemius, it sort of corkscrews around and forms the fibers on the undersurface of the tendon. So that little tear before was involving tendon fibers arising from medial gastroc. Some of the central fibers tend to be from soleus, and the superficial fibers tend to be from lateral gastrocnemius. So, so that might be relevant for in terms of doing rehab and uh, and trying to work out which, which fibres have been overloaded, which one needs to be tra- change in terms of, you know, stretching and load and all those sorts of things. The other thing to, I think, to maybe think about is that we don't talk about tendinitis anymore. We know that these conditions aren't inflammatory conditions. They're, they tend to be a tendinosis so, and it's multifactorial, but one of them, of course, is load, which has been overloaded. And you see there's these collagen fibrils and things starting to break down in some of the junctions. So um, I'm sure Dr. Jout will expand on that. We don't say tendonitis anymore, do we?
1: No, we don't say tendonitis. We talk about tendonopathy, Achilles. I guess what we've seen here is how well suited to imaging the Achilles is ultrasound. In fact, I'm not sure there are a lot of indications for using MR in this situation, um, just because of the detail we get with ultrasound. Um, there are other ultrasound has has some recent developments as well. Um, and if we look at this colour picture here, Martin might talk, or David, about elastography um, in this situation. So this is the same tendon but we can see the colour overlay here.
0: So this is just, uh, just a very sensitive way of detecting softening. So what happens as we start to see tendons break down, they become more watery, assumes it's granular appearance. You lose the echogenic, the stiffness in the tendon, so they become sort of soft and watery. And there's a technique called elastography where we can measure the stiffness of tendons, and they come with these these fancy colours. And we've done a little bit of research showing that this is a very sensitive way for detecting tendinopathy and monitoring the changes within tendons. So if you might read about that in the literature, it's a relatively new thing over the last few years. Um, We're very lucky; we had a a terrific uh, uh, person, a sonographer from Singapore, who came and did a PhD with us on, on elastography. So I think we've. Uh, Gene's published five or six papers in in this field so we're kind of very interested in it Um, but it's a nice way of detecting early changes of tendinopathy and monitoring those changes. Yeah
1: so that's the monitoring I talked about in your imaging and we might be able to decide how we're going to load this person's tendon and what sort of exercises by how this is behaving on elastography. You can see a very thickened abnormal tendon hypoechoic, particularly superficially. Um, There's my rupture. Um, The other things we can look at um, is blood flow in tendons. And again, here's our abnormal hypoechoic thickened tendon. And, and we can see their sort of colour Doppler v- vision of blood flow, particularly around the tendon. It's a very round tendon, not a flattened tendon. And so there's lots of paratendon activity here. And this is power Doppler, is it? No.
0: Yeah, that is. Yeah.
1: yeah. So, so again, we can get a lot of information from ultrasound that may help certainly guide, decide on the activity of that tendon.
3: Sorry to belabor the point on etiology of these things, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if this, my overall impression, certainly civilian patients I see, and, and having experienced it myself, that most tendon problems are overuse. That's Correct. how it develops. And, it, and the other parameter is that tendon is not conditioned. And hence I'm often warning Sorry. people who start doing weights, their muscles will grow quicker than their tendons will, uh, will uh, correspondingly. And so you can get tendon and ligament injuries. They're not keeping up with the strength. You've got to gradually develop and slowly. Um, and the other just general principle I've noticed about it, if it's an overuse injury, I find that underuse is the best management of the lot. Um, and that contradicts elite sports people who don't want to lose condition. But nevertheless, to relieve the condition, I find that's the ultimate. And the the, the, uh, um, the, the the other thing uh, with with etiology, and having experienced tendonitis myself, I I looked up all the research at the time, and when you get a lot of different treatments, usually none of them are magic. Mm-hmm. I know this stretching has been going on for ages. I actually found if I took longest paces and stretched the tendon, it aggravated the tendonitis. And I took shorter paces, it was better. And it contradicts to me the principle in general practice of using Heel raises, on one hand, which makes good sense, and on the other hand, stretching. Now, you can't have both. This is all the
1: contradictions I find in this area. So, so, so tendon. So there's lots of Melbourne's a home of some really good tendon researchers, um, and we're. St- I mean, there's still a lot to go. We're starting to under ten- understand tendons. I agree with you. There are different populations. Our elite athletes, our high training, we have to hold back with the tendonopathy but I would argue the other population we have to push. Yes, you can settle their symptoms with rest, but there's no stimulation for the tendon to change or remodel. So rest might be a short-term intervention, but eventually you've got to get them stronger. As I said before, I don't believe there's a role for stretching. It's all about strengthening. And can I just give you another paper um, by Ebony Rio, who's at La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre, talks about tendon neuroplastic training. You might have seen it on one of the TV news last year. And again, it's all about heavy, slow resistance training um, and using a metronome. In fact, if you've got a patient with with a painful tendon, you can relieve pain by getting them to do isometrics, as in holds. Get them to raise and just hold. Hold it up to 40 seconds. So you're just holding at an angle isometric, same length. It's very good for pain management but it's also good for tendon remodeling. But again you've got to think about then put some resistance in and they'll have the calf wasting as well and you've got to get the muscle back. And it's different training for muscles and tendons as you said. I'll give you a classic story. I had a weightlifter who was short gauging sticking steroids into his biceps. He came to me one day, he was doing curls. Ping, one biceps went Weight all went on the other one, the other biceps, distal biceps went. So ruptured his tendons, as you said, because the muscle development outran the tendon development, so certainly the case. So again, have a look for Ebony Rio's work, read the Melbourne researchers from La Trobe. Tendons all about strengthening and use isometrics. Um, This is Hocken Alfredson, he was famous for introducing the eccentric program. He's since and, and then he looked at the neovascularity with his colleagues and they were doing little um, little ablations of those vessels. And he's now his fascination was, is with the plantaris tendon. This is another form of imaging of a tendon. This is called ultrasound tissue characterization, and they're finding on the medial aspect where the plantaris is an abnormal section of tendon, and he releases that plantaris. Um, yeah, still jury's out to me a little bit on that one, but Hawkins' uh, very keen on it. Um, in terms of eccentrics, we've gone away from that a little bit, because we think compression is bad for tendons. We know compression in the rotator cuff is bad for tendons. Can you just show me the um, uh, calcaneus and the Achilles tendon? Again, at that interface. <coughs> And then, maybe if you dorsiflex his foot, just I think we might see what happens. See this bit of bone there starting to impinge on the tendon a little bit? And so, we think that's going to cause tendonopathic changes in this region. So, eccentrics have gone out of favour a little bit because of that type of pathology. And so, that's why we're doing isometric holds in a raise or we're doing more calf raises. But there's no doubt there's still a population, usually older in their 50s that do quite nicely with eccentrics. I suspect they probably don't have the range of young, healthy people, so they don't get into that much trouble. So...
0: So going backwards into, obviously, a more common problem, once you've
3: snapped it, you snap it, it's usually a subacute. Where you've got the patient who has the, the mid achilles thickening localized tenderness.
2: management protocol?
1: Management protocol is... I'll often start with isometrics the continued holds I get them to...
2: Sorry,
1: the well not necessarily, so um, I, certainly if they've got an aggravating activity but if we're talking about someone um, uh, someone relatively, well worker or relatively recreational um, so I'll, I'll, I'll stop the aggravating activity and I'll start some isometric strengthening twice daily, five holds up to 40 seconds I can use that for pain management as well um, and then I'll, I'll progress them through that program and add some strengthening work and I'll try and hit them twice a week with some heavy load strengthening and then we'll get some some calf muscle work happening which is slightly different as well um, yeah and a graduated sort of return to activity from that point of view now that would be nice if they all responded that well but that's the sort of framework for me it's, that lo- it's, a, it's the load and the strengthening in combination, first and foremost. PRP,
0: you're not going
1: to like the question, do you think you will. No. So I, well, <laughs> I
0: disagree slightly because I've done a lot of PRP, uh, probably too much for Dr. Jowett's liking, tens of thousands of cases. But, you know, I, one of the problems is, is, you know, you've, for most, 90% of patients do well with, with this type of conservative program. And, and I think you'd probably, you'd stop them from running if they're a runner and then start to load the, the, you know, the muscle and the tendons. But you've got refractory people that you know, have, you've got to kind of feel compelled to intervene. And, um, and so, so for many years now, a lot of us do do PRP. And the idea is to put growth factors into these delaminations and splits that we can now see very nicely within tendons. And, and Joe is correct in that, you know, the evidence is, is not hard, some soft evidence. Um, but what we do know is that by inserting a needle into a tendon, and dry needling it, in it alone which is what we used to do before we injected whole blood and then PRP is that will provoke a healing response that will provoke a stimulating response and will modulate the the pain cycle so and that's why a lot of people have you know acupuncture or needles stuck into them because it actually changes the the pain reaction so um
3: massage be analogous
0: possibly but um look I, I don't know I guess the, our technique is a little bit what we try and do is is we try and um and we have some there's a group of sports physicians that favor PRP and there's a group that don't, so I'm gonna respect that, but there are some that are out there and I'm sure you know that. Um, we try and strip that loose connective tissue away from the Achilles tendon to strip away the, the sensitized nerves and to free it up if you like. It's, a sense, it's the nerve, it's a pain thing that patients are worried about, not necessarily the underlying condition of the tendon. So you can do what's called a little stripping or hydrodilatation, free away those nerves, maybe needle the tendon, maybe put something in there that might provoke some healing. That's kind of the philosophy behind PRP. So Having said that, we don't do as much as we used to, but I still yeah. think there's a role for refractory cases.
1: So the, I think if you tell someone it'll work, it'll work 70% of the time if they believe it. And then we know that's the placebo effect. Um, with injections, I think, I talked about Hock and Alfredson. I think what they were doing was similar, trying to strip the, the nerves off the deep surface of the tendon. I suspect massage might work by desensitizing tendons. Certainly the deep aggressive cross frictions. The physios in the 60s and 70s used to do before they all got osteoarthritis in their thumbs. Mm. Radial shockwave is no doubt a denervation effect. Um, And then David talked about this hydrodilatation, which my colleagues in Britain have done, with sort of high-volume injections, stripping the nerves off the tendon, with some reasonable results in those refractive Mm. cases. So if I'm injecting, that's the one I favour. The evidence behind PRP, the problem with it is that everyone's recipe is different. The soup's different. And in fact, within that person, the growth factors will alter minute by minute, day by day. So no one knows exactly what they're putting in uh, to the tendon, but everyone knows their t- their their preparation works. So you can listen to mm. the great Spaniard Ramon Cougar. His always works, and it's but it, but the studies weren't the way I do it. He says so, my mine works. So mm. that's the problem with studying PRP. Yeah. But um, but just
0: on some of those refractory cases, Joe. Yeah. So we've had a couple of footballers or several footballers that have this chronic tendinopathy. You know, and they're trying to train and stuff, and they haven't responded to injection. So some of them had to go to have been to surgery and had the the nerves basically sort of you know stripped away from the tendon to give them some relief with with some some reasonable results as well. Yeah. So that's also an,
1: and again that might be a drastic option if how that plantarist thing. Actually, I think that's how the plantarist works. It's a stripping procedure as well.
0: Mm. So so I guess there's two things here. There's treating the tendon problem, the underlying tendinopathy, delamination, splits and tears and things, and there's a pain problem. And for most athletes, it's the pain that they're they're worried about, they don't really care about the underlying condition of the tendon or the plantar fascia. They're in pain, and that's what's stopping them from doing their activity. So there's two things, we can treat the pain, which is probably how cortisone works, and local anesthetic, and then there's a way of of remodeling and reconditioning the tendon, so.
1: And don't forget, um, pain science, where pain science is going now, is how important the cortex is in pain. And that's what, that's what Ebony's talking about here with the metronome, how we can change the cortical changes that happen um, in terms of pain in the Achilles tendon. So, um, pain's very important, in fact. So,
0: Martin's got a nice picture here. Martin. Yeah,
1: we want to focus. We'll move into the calf now. So, focus is. One last
3: uh, small What spot you put your cortisone in this patient? Because we had so much from bearing from the bottom attachment to the further way up. So to what point
1: do you direct your cortisol injection? I don't think I've ever injected an Achilles tendon with corticosteroid and I wouldn't advocate anyone does that.
0: I thought somebody told to that, but that's what I was finding because it's so much a rupture of the tendons. Yeah. Because he mentioned the corticosteroid injection just about
1: two seconds ago. So that's what I was wondering where you it? I was talking about plantar fascia underneath where the spur was. Understood that. But yeah. So, there might
0: so, so we were talking about the stripping, using local anaesthetic to strip away the nerves. No, no cortisone. Without cortisone,
1: high volume local anaesthetic and saline injection.
3: On the subject of pain, I noticed this myself and I warned my patients. If the pain comes the next day, you're not actually told at the time you're damaging it. And this is a trap when you get, when it's milder. When the, when the tendonitis is mild, you do something and the next day it's painful. And my usual advice is, look, if you think you've overdone something, take an anti-inflammatory that day and it might reduce the build-up over for the next day, just a one-day dose. Is that being used, much anti-inflammatories for one-off doses or regular,
1: what's the thoughts there? It's being used a lot by our footballers all the time with anti-inflammatories. Um, um, we try and, and be a bit scientific about timing it, we try not to use it on the day of the insult, but perhaps a little bit down the track, we want to generate a normal healing response if there's been an injury. We don't want to cause increased bleeding, so we'll often delay 24 hours the use of anti-inflammatories. Um, in those guys where we're managing their load, we're redu- and and we need to know what they're feeling. I don't want to obscure what they're feeling because we're adjusting their load according to those sort of symptoms. Um, we want to move on again, focus particularly is on imaging of soft tissues. And so we're moving in up from the Achilles into the calf. Um, and Martine's got a lovely picture here. Um, do you want to take us? Yeah, I well,
2: I mean, we use a lot of long range imaging. If you get to see any imaging from Olympic Park, a lot of our muscle architecture, I explain it to our patients when we're doing it because so I think it's really relevant. It's very hard to work out. But between this surface and this surface is three millimetres. So the detail of what we're seeing is, is submillimeter millimeter fascial detail. And I, I, I scan this free time and I zoom it up as well, so I can get a much better look. But if you look at the, the epimysial kind of frame and the, all of the detail epi-mycial that we are seeing, sort of we are really duplicating uh, vision that you cannot see with a naked eye. So it's sub-millimeter detail, mm-hmm. and we get caught up in little focal de- de- defects, but our detail is there. So my colleagues and myself, if you ever do get muscle imaging from us, you will very often see the muscle in whole. Sometimes your focal defect will only be at this distal... Sorry, I'm just playing with this image because I've got the whole muscle. Semi- this is your medial your head of gastrocnemius is deep to it. And so very often your, t- your fiber disruption will be here, and then what we find is this a site between the two of them, is then distended with uh, fluid, and these images look great on MRI, um, but I think our detail, our intramuscular detail, I've biased, hmm. I, I like what we can see, it's less and white. Hmm. So,
0: so, so just the, the anatomy, so obviously this is the, oh, go back to the MRT. So, Yeah. so we've got skin here, this yeah. is the medial gastrocnemius muscle, this is the the epimycium or the fascia that separates medial gastroc from soleus and you can see this the way that the orientation of these muscle fibers how they insert into this fascia epimycium so they're a bit like struts on a on a suspension bridge and you can imagine if you start to ping some of these struts and you go ting 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 and so it almost has like a zipper effect and a gap opens up you get bleeding and that's what a calf tear is and then we try and describe where that tear is has it occurred from the deep surface or has it occurred from the superficial surface and they're always away, they never tear in the middle of the muscle, if you like. It's always away from a surface, from epimysium or fascial covering, or down where it forms the, the Achilles. And that's the true tennis leg, if you like, as it tapers down and forms the Achilles. Some of those fibres can, can rupture.
1: So as David said, it's at an interface where a change in tissue structure occurs that we get these injuries. Can I just give a plug for ultrasound, a musculoskeletal ultrasound? Um, By all means. It's got to be done by really good technicians um, who understand musculoskeletal anatomy, and we're lucky to work with some next door. And the amazing detail you can get, but you need to be quite selective about um, the skill set of who you choose to do your scans. Um, this, this is a, some images Martin gave us of, um, of a hematoma within the calf muscle. We can see the fluid separation and the fibrin forming. And this is how, this is what ultrasound allows us to do. So you can see the internal cannula of the needle there as we're aspirating that hematoma. And again, the hematoma, sort of the remnants of a collection I assume down here. Um, This is what we're talking about, what David was talking about. The sort of zipper effect, maybe a split between the layers of that, of that fascia there, or, uh, and this is obviously a more significant sort of Unraveling I guess isn't
0: it. Yeah, with a large lot of bleeding sense which we see so so one of the indicators for us is uh, for muscle tear Then there's always bleeding so um, Unless so for us looking at scans with MRI ultrasound if we don't see any blood products Then we it's unlikely to be a tear so it's it's a very helpful sign, but there's there's always some bleeding um, That we can see on the scan Well, we've got an expert in the room on compartment <laughs> syndrome, very, we're very lucky.
1: <laughs> so, compartment syndrome, I think there's a lot of challenge to whether compa- what compartment syndrome is and whether it exists. But, I actually did my master's thesis on ultrasound in compartment syndrome. And going back to basic physics, there's an inverse relationship between pressure and volume. And so, if the pressure's going up, then the volume's going down. And that's the thing with compartment, the co- there's, there's no change in volume, because the fascia is too stiff and it doesn't stretch it doesn't stretch the pressure goes up. So ultrasound doesn't really help us very much here um, in compartment syndrome unless there's a localized bleed. Um, if I can give a plug the first thing you do with compartment syndrome is is get their running mechanics run- checked because it's probably how they're running um, that causes that recurrent exertional compartment syndrome. And so now I, I, I do compartment pressure testing but I don't do it unless someone's had their running mechanics checked, and I've been through a running retraining program. So, I've got really non-invasive with that.
0: No, no role for PIP in compartment syndrome?
1: No role for PIP. <laughs> no. how no. long will the blood be seen
3: on ultrasound? You're saying that for it to diagnose a tear, you have hmm. to
1: see blood.
0: It lasts for a long time, so we know, for example, on MRI scanning, that blood products, they'll dissipate slowly. Most of them are gone. It depends on the size of the tear, of course. They take several weeks to go away, even a month. But one of the th- things, because we often get patients sent in from GPs who had a calf tear, that, that's not a problem. But um, patients in a lot of discomfort, you know, to aspirate the, these hematomas. But what happens is they tear the calf on Saturday. By the time they get to us on Monday, these, um let me just go back uh by the time they get to us on Monday and they form these, these big hematomas, uh, it's solid, they've formed a clot. And so of course, if we try and put a needle in here, then you, know, you can't get anything out because it's like a solid clot. So that we then have to wait another sort of somewhere between 10 and 14 days for that to liquefy before we can then get a needle in and, and suck out the blood. And that's kind of a discomforting period. So forms clot pretty quickly uh, and we can't aspirate it. So the blood products hang around for a long time the problem is if you don't get rid of it if you don't aspirate then you know your chronic hematomas can be a problem because it, it it's not good for muscles they can't function normally if you've got a big blood clot and of course the blood clot can calcify sometimes but you know they can't function normally so we're quite keen to remove hematomas particularly in the hamstrings and the calves um, but it's just a matter of knowing when's the time to try and get rid of them
3: can you tell if
0: they're liquefied on? can so one of the things is it's uh, so it looks this looks kind of solidy on ultrasound, when it liquefies, it becomes black, yeah. like water, very black, and it becomes like here, and then it's compressible, so we can push down on it, and you'll, you'll see it moving, whereas obviously with a solid clot, you know, you, you put some compression on it, it doesn't move much at all. So that's a good, good sign for us as well.
3: So, sorry, the even, what was the appearance of the fluid? How does the fluid look when it's not? Black, so blood?
0: like that black, that's so that's very, like water. Yeah. See this sort of? It's black, yeah. Yeah, so very black, yeah, like that this. Point,
2: it's just it's, that's not unusual mid time recurrence because it's a fibrin. So when you're actually looking at that you can see it swirling. So you can actually see the fluid if you push on it, all those that all disperses. So I let the patient lay still and took my probe off to get the, the, the black but I knew that it was all free fluid. But if I look at another collection, that was this allele one that we didn't put in, it's, it's it has a different mixed heterogeneity to it. It looks different. Visually. It's
0: very so if you think, if you've ever seen upper abdominal ultrasound, so gallbladder is black because it's filled with fluid and the liver is very solid sort of whitish looking so it's black generally.
1: So this sort of patient is, comes into comes into my rooms a lot, come, I'm sure comes into your rooms a lot. It's a, for, a male runner in their 40s, they've been for a run, they got a sudden sharp pain in their calf, they hobbled, it was better by the next day, settled down, maybe took the week off running and started running again next week calf went again, I've got to take maybe three weeks off this time calf settles quite quickly, I'll start running again they've maybe done some bike in that interval inter- period and I think bike's bad and then they go again, oh, and so they'll often this is, this is you can see side to side comparisons of the same sort of part of the structure the change that's happened um, in, this, in this fascia here. And so they're a pretty difficult group of patients that need a tendon approach, a slow, gradual tendon strengthening approach. I had a little dabble with PRP in the old days putting it into these, but that's uh, from one of your Canberra colleagues. But uh, that was, you know, in the end it's rehabilitating this tendon. And I'll show you an MR of an abnormal tendon in a second. So here, here you go, here's our normal anatomy, like this one here. But this one, dark, hypoechoic, thickened, separated almost. Is that what you'd say, David, with that one? That's a...
0: Absolutely. Yep.
1: All right. Um, again, a few more tears on ultrasound hematomas related to that. Um, so it's not showing up really well, but um, this is a fluid collection and this is an MRI of the same thing, isn't it, Martine? That's Correct. Yeah,
2: the interesting thing about that and the learning curve in that image, even for me looking at the detail, is as David points out, the, the, the distal muscular, the head junction, that's the tear. So the tear is two two centimetres, you reckon, David? Yeah. So the, the fibre disruption is two So
0: this is medial gastrocnemius here, and this is the tear. See so these fibers that's have pulled back moment. and but retracted form this gap. So the tears are tiny, often tiny. In calves, you can see this big, massive hematoma oh, that's formed, so they can bleed a lot. So, so the bleeding tears can be sort of here on yeah the ultrasound. tears here, and this is but this big hematoma. So often the bleeding is out of proportion to the to the degree of tearing. So
3: is there a place for compression when you think it's immediately
1: happened? Yep, compression band. Yeah, compression and ice for sure in this situation. Don't stretch it. Why are we pulling fibres apart? <laughs> they want to heal. Let them sit together. Um, I'll give you a case. Um, It's not Ellie but she's one of my patients, I hope we see her in the high jump later this week or next week. Um, This is a case from nearby, near where Ellie's from um, Lee and Gatha. A 29 year old radiology nurse who plays social netball twice a week. She had acute calf pain pushing off, had a grossly abnormal ultrasound of her Achilles, Was put in a cam walker for a couple of weeks, she settled, started some strengthening and flared up again. Hopefully this shows up okay. Um, This is the normal side here. And if we look at this structure here, grossly thickened, fluid between the layers. um, A really abnormal tendon that comes from the Achilles is abnormal right up into the calf. Again, comparison side to side, we're lucky in this case we can. Really thickened tendon. you can see the Achilles is abnormal <laughs> and thickened lower down, with fluid tracking down alongside it. Um, hard to see the T shape. This, these are the normal side with the aponeurosis we looked at in long section, and the T shape component going deep. You able to see that on ultrasound for us? Yeah, definitely. Just decrease,
2: mm-hmm.
1: well, we can see that. okay and, and in this patient you can see how grossly thickened particularly the medial limb of this is quite abnormal, lots of fluid around it and if you follow it down this is what you can see it on that picture there how thickened it is compared to this normal, uh, really thickened if you follow it down this is where it's interesting David talked about we can see the how, it, how it's the medial side of the Achilles tendon so we can follow where those fibers are going and maybe target our rehab more to the medial side. But this is a really abnormal tendon and she's going to take a long time and a long slow rehabilitation for that tendon for something that would seem to be fairly simple. Um, This is again more MRIs. I'm sure we'd see changes on ultrasound but we can see musculotendinous tears
2: yeah
0: and 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 so I, oh, nope. yeah there you go I told, okay. no no I was gonna you're about to talk about so <laughs>
1: um, and what you can see here particularly look at the tendon and look at the the retraction and the, the the waviness of this tendon showing a disruption at this level
0: so so what we know now about I guess muscle injuries in leading into the hamstring is that we used to think muscle fibres that tear. So we now know that muscle fibres tear close to connective tissues, it's often superficial. But we also know that there are tendons, tendons that run through muscles. And that wasn't really appreciated as much as before.
1: We used to think a tendon stuck to a muscle and it was muscle.
0: Yeah, we used to think bone, tendon, muscle, tendon, okay. bone. But as in actual fact, most muscles have a tendon going all the way through the muscle. And like this case here, um, it, it can be disrupted. So it's in fact, it's, it's, it's a tendon rupture, but it's just inside the calf muscle. And that's why some calf tears or some hamstring tears take three months to recover, as opposed to the standard little muscle tear, which might only take three or four weeks. And that was, before we had imaging, we couldn't really appreciate trying to sort out those two groups. And you'll hear some footballers that have a hamstring tear and they're out for three months and some might be back for, two or three. In, in the old days, so 20 years ago, we'd say you had a hamstring tear, you'd, uh, you'd be out three for three months. weeks and you'd be, be back again playing week four. And that's, that's the band, barn door, how everyone got treated. We're a bit more savvy now, uh, appreciating, that, as I say, that these struts and cords that run through uh, muscles ca- can, be, can be ruptured.
1: And so that's a significant injury in this guy. So Martine's showing us intramuscular. In yeah, so up in the hamstring and intramuscular tendon. So this
2: is a sciatic nerve as a protocol now instead of just jumping up to the origin to start with this picture um, with semimembranosis here this is the intratendinous component and in the diagram that John Jawa showed early about the myofibular attachments we got very familiar with these in the fem, where we could follow these tendons down and we look at the fibular attachment and again, we weren't well versed in knowing that there this is the, like actually on the top there's a semi-tendinosus, feathered one, but this is the semi tendon here. So we're not only just looking for this micro change in the fibers, we're actually looking to see whether there's involvement of this tendon. semi not as much, but the biceps fem, distally, and at this origin up here, where this tendon seems to thin out and almost disappear, If we can see a loss of architecture, we probably say to David, you know, I think probably needs an MR. I wouldn't call a lot of this on ultrasound, but I'm aware of it. So it's something that we're aware of if we're trying to grade an injury now that we look for it. It's not common knowledge. It's something that we do probably almost... I gave talks on this a few months ago exclusively, but it is something that once you've got your eye in, um, we try and add it in. And that sciatic nerve down the bottom. So for young cattle, sometimes you'll get these people talking about that as semimember, but that is actually your sciatic nerve running through that compartment. And this racus here is for semitendinosis. So they all look random <coughs> until you can appreciate that they all look very similar on ultrasound. They have a, a very similar appearance that then you start to see changes. So.
0: You know, I guess as a rule of thumb, you know, sorry, the, the, as a rule of thumb, ultrasound is great for superficial structures, so great for plantar fascia, Achilles, button. probably even calf, but big muscles, particularly big footballers and rugby players, it's, it's hard to get the depth and the penetration. So some of the very specialised skill set like Martin and brand new uh, Philips ultrasound, and certainly know it. I think, but you and know, you patient. can get pictures of the hamstring, but generally we prefer MRI scanning for hamstring. Sorry. straight to MR, absolutely, yeah. Just going
3: back in the real world, okay, you're spoiled
1: because you've got the physios and sports psychologists there. In the real world, if you're coaching or if you're the doctor, you're imagine, okay?
3: Recurrent, what are
1: we talking about? We're talking about calves? or calves? Yeah, calves. Calves? So calves, um, there's obviously offloading. You might use a heel raise in that situation you might want to immobilise them in the boot, they might be non-weight-bearing, they can be quite sore. Um, so you're going you're to uh, take the tension out of that musculotendinous structure that's been injured, you're going to compress them, you're going to ice them. Um, Is there but
3: any risk of compartment compressing?
1: No. Never heard of it in that situation. There's um, one reported case of a mobile skier in quadriceps, but that's about it. Um, the early phase, probably 48 hours like that and then I'm going to want to get them going, I'm going to want to get some mobility, it might be non-weight bearing active contractions and the like, but I, I, I want to get the muscle tendon unit in a pain free fashion moving and then we'll talk. I might talk a little bit later about that sort of rehab in terms of the hamstring we're going to get some strengthening happening, trying to get some normal function get the nerve stimulus, get the um, get the muscles contracting, stimulate. The, the nerve, there are neur- neural growth factors that help us with healing as well. So all those sorts of things. Like can, you can you use muscle tears? Can you use PRP and acute muscle tears? Why? There's lots of platelets there already. It's just bled. So again, and there's some good studies showing no evidence of <laughs> effect of PRP and acute muscle injuries. Great oh, stuff. <laughs> Can I show you? No, you won't love the it's next cool bit. Yeah, cool. oh. Can how I show would, you the next bit? Oh. How, how will ultrasound affect your, your management in terms of how long this
3: person will get? If you've got your footballer at your local league, yep. where I've got my <coughs>
2: right players on the park, yep. how will ultrasound be able to tell me how long this patient
1: will get? So, so you've got an opportunity with hematomas in situations like that. We know that's going to delay their recovery and so there's an opportunity to um, remove a hematoma that will improve their prognosis and, and recovery. Um, we'll get the site of the injury and the tendon involvement Martin's shown you various areas water of the tendon the, the more tendon water. involvement the worse the prognosis and I'll talk about that in hamstrings. Spot hamstrings are probably our sort of the one we've most studied because they are our biggest problem in these. Um, I'll talk about that in a sec. I want to mo- keep moving on So you said you'd like this, but you won't like the next bit. And so this is just looking at a mechanism, an unusual mechanism. If you watch Chris Judd here, running away with the ball, kicks away, hasn't torn it yet, gets the ball back from Casbolt, who can handball, not kick, gets pushed, flexes at the hip, tears his hamstring, you can see him hobbling here. So he's had that water skiing type hip flexion injury, a sudden eccentric load through the hamstring tendon, And here he is, hobbling off. I think that was probably the end of his career, wasn't it? I think he came back, but not much good from that. So, this is what we talked about, the anatomy of our tendon in the hamstrings, how we've got a tendon going through the muscle, this sort of Z-shape, and then another tendon going distally. And so, obviously, you can imagine the force through these sort of areas most hamstring tears are in the biceps femoris and that's what we're looking at here and we'll look at distal tendon injuries, these intramuscular in- tendinous injection, uh, tears, proximal tendons and avulsions, they're probably your, your key group um, hamstring injuries some prognostic guides the severity of that initial event, there was fairly severe incident Chris Jarzi had quite Significant pain, it was significantly limited. How long do the symptoms take to settle? Another useful prognostic sign. We'll talk about there are lots of signs on an MRI that we think give us a prognosis. But the key thing is recognizing tendon involvement, respect it, and if you don't respect tendon involvement, then they've got a poor recovery. High risk of recurrence and really delayed recovery in these. So, as I said, most of these injuries happen in biceps. Footballers can often function with semimembranosus, semitendinosus injuries because biceps crosses two joints. Um, And this talks about the different areas of disruption uh, in those sort of injuries. And you can see those that involve disrupted the rachis, the tendon part of it, had a much, much longer recovery time. So, working from distally, again biceps at the lateral aspect of the knee, inserting to the fibular head and around the posterior capsule and different footprints. <laughs> um, and this is what we might see on an MRI, but we can. this is quite superficial as David said, so ultrasound particularly useful for looking at these type of injuries. So they, they can have acute pain on the posterolateral aspect of their knee, usually during a contraction. And a lot of these are quite disabling and, and destabilise the knee and end up with consideration of a surgical repair. So, Martine, we're just looking at
2: i'm just very superficial here so the first centimeter or so so, so just
0: the just show us the, the bone martin so shows show us the fibula that's, that's yeah. your fibula head here's the here the fibula yeah
1: and our heads up this end yeah. and here's our lateral sort of joint line
2: and the lateral collateral ligament fuses through this as well so again it can be quite disorganized as an image in a normal population simply because you've got the two fusing through so you see the lateral collateral ligament fuse through there but we try and keep on to the fibers. it's just a different So sometimes this area here is a little bit vague. And then biceps tendon, this is in uh, sagittal plane, so I'm following, again, this is three to four millimetres of fibres, which then, they graduate down, a bit like the Banifazio as we were looking at it, down to one to two millimetres of fibres as they fuse to the more muscular tenderness component. And we can watch these things, the little fibres move all the way through, Mm-hmm. what's going on for me, it's telling me something. And you can watch it, and again, you see, as Dave said, this feathering attachment of the muscle belly onto the almost aponeurosis or part of it. If I go transverse, again, this is only probably point, oh, point 0.5 of a millimetre, 0.6 of a millimetre in tissue, and then you've got all your intramuscular anatomy and architecture. As we move across, you've got short head and long head of biceps. And this is, again, um, you know, if I'm screening this area, and again, it is screening because the global picture of MR, I can't reproduce muscle edema in the same way. I can, but it's different. And so we would then perhaps say, if we've got past the distal biceps, where we're good at looking at focal tendinosis, and we're into an intramuscular component of it, we would discuss it. As we do with all our patients, every case is discussed with a radiologist, um, without exception, we would consider that perhaps an MRI, if, if required, is useful in a clinical setting because it's got tendon involvement, is that right? Mm. You would be happy for at least yep. to alert that that would be something that you may want to work up.
1: So, if those of you who was at Collingwood in the last days of Nathan Buckley's career, if you recall, he finished his career on the bench with a hamstring tear in the grand final or preliminary final, I think it was. Um, preliminary final it was. And um, what we didn't recognise, we were imaging him a lot, of course. Uh, you can see how superficial that tendon is. And he actually, at surgery, had a, a transverse split across that tendon. We basically opened the skin and it was sitting there right in front of us, this tendon tear. But, and when we got the retrospectoscope out and had a look at his scans, we could see it. But we were looking so much deeper for his injury all along so again and, and this is probably what his look like very superficial bleeding and tearing loss of the tendon a bit of retraction um, but again we were focusing so much deeper within the muscle
0: so so we've, we've learned a lot about hamstrings i guess in the last 10 years so the so the new one is that central tendon can be ruptured so and this one is which is yet to really make the literature but mm hope you get there is this what we call the distal muscular tennis junction of biceps so where the short head and long head come together There's a t-shaped junction and then it forms the free tendon which it attaches onto the bone and this particular area is vulnerable to tearing and when they do it's a bugger because they rec- the player so recovers Sorry. very quickly Sorry. so down there usually they're symptom-, the symptom free within a week or so they can play within three weeks but the big thing in, and the, if we look at the at the cohort that we see that, uh, for players, the risk of recurrence is really high. So we've got about 120 of these and the risk of recurrence is about 55%, which mm-hmm. is incredibly high. And what it says to us, and interesting, in Dr Jowett's comments, is that you've got to identify this particular injury and historically it hasn't been managed well. And I think a lot of these soft tissue, injury, soft tissue injuries take a long time to heal and recover with this gradual loading of the muscle and strengthening and stretching of the connective tissues. And so something like this would in my eyes is an eight to 10 week injury, or if not longer.
1: Plus, yeah, exactly. Um, just look, we'll just keep moving up the, the, uh, hamstring now, and we can see this sort of injury, um, fluid blood fluid in the muscle around the tendon, the tendons a bit beaded. So there's been some injury to this tendon. Um, again, Martine gets a little view of that. We saw we saw a little tadpole, tadpole when she was demonstrating it before. Um,
2: again, that's a, deep, a deeper boundary and so sometimes that fluid that goes deep, ultrasound loses the, really doesn't,
0: the perception of the depth. So sorry, just to put into perspective, so this is the semimembranosus tendon that runs through the, this is a semimembranosus muscle that doesn't really have one fate thing and this is the biceps is that muscle biceps? and this is the biceps tendon here and as, as Joey says it's beaded appearance a so little areas of scar tissue where he's torn the past and it's obviously a more recent tear and it's all bleeding separating between biceps and semi so what you can see on these these pictures very nicely is this intramuscular this black thing is that's the tendon that's that can tear
1: so um, again sorry a bit hard to see but you can see fluid surrounding that tendon and then blood into the fibres through here. So, these sort of tendon looks nice, straight, in congruity, not really thickened, not disrupted. And these are sort of more muscle type injuries that are likely to settle quicker. Um, and they're, they're closer to your three or four week type hamstrings. Do
3: you do follow up imaging if it's eight or ten weeks at the end of it? Do you check? Can I show you this
1: one? <laughs> so, so, um, this is a, an elite sprinter, he's probably the second behind Jack Hale, the Tasmanian boy um, who we saw at the end, and this is, the, this is not him, this is Australian sprinter in the in Olympic Games, Alex Hartman. Um, I think he's in the 200 metres so we hope he does really well. Um, this is an acute onset hamstring sprain, pain in a sprinter and I'll show you, I, might, I won't go through all these pictures maybe, we'll go through I've got a summary, again, he's, this, this is a, an international prospect, so that's why we've got lots of scans. Um, this, is, this is his injury from the insertion, this is the tendon, and we can see we lose that black tendon, have a lot of blood, and then our tendon starts up around here somewhere. I didn't catch him, I didn't see him at the start, this was done somewhere else by someone else, um, but the decision was, so this is in October, decision was made to manage him conservatively. In November he was settling quite nicely and you can see there's sort of tendon running through here now. It's not black tendon, it's grey tendon, but it does seem to be in some congruity. Then in December we've actually got quite a nice looking tendon here. And so he's been through a period of rest, through some low-grade painless strengthening into some more higher level strengthening, tendon loading strengthening, In January he thought he was really good, it was a local comp and he did the long jump with his mates and he pinged his tendon again. And so pretty much similar to this one, tendon ends here and then disruption and then tendon starts down here. So I've got a whole lot of pictures of him but the point is there is a role for conservative management. The MRI helps us monitor the tendon but they've got to behave and um, in this situation he ended up having that surgically repaired. Now when I was training no one talked about surgery for the hamstrings. Um, I've been fortunate to be involved in a lot of surgery. David and Peter Bruckner wrote up this famous paper recently about the intramuscular tendon in difficult hamstring and quad strains and here's here's a good example from that paper the Proximal tendon that's probably a bit abnormal anyway—and then a disruption. And see this waviness, the loss of tension. There's a probably the end of the tendon bundle up. Now again, I said I've been lucky enough to be holding the retractor in theatre. The first thing you find is a lot of blood, a hematoma, and then it's amazing how you find these sort of frayed tendon fibers sitting free, and and you can see why it does need to be repaired. Now, as usual, surgical photos are pretty useless, but we can see tendon fibres here, wavy like in the picture, and then what we've got is a cobbled together cord of tendon that we repaired in a case like that. So, I think there may be a role for surgical repair of some of these tendons. Maybe not just in elite athletes, because um, they can be significant, cause significant functional deficiencies down the track. But I always go back and say, well what did we do in the old days, you know, had they they probably got better, didn't they? Um, or did they, like my tennis partner, just be vulnerable to the drop shot at the net so I can <laughs> down to get it. Um,
3: were they
1: absorbable or non-absorbable? They were non-absorbable. I don't know why Julian he uses non-absorbable in the tendon, so that's so what he does. Um, let's look at, this is the typical thing you might see on the footy field, Gibbo clutching is... Sort of upper hamstring, a proximal tendon injury versus avulsion. I haven't got any kids, but certainly the kids have that growth plate at the ischium, and they can pull off a bit of bone with it. Have you? How old are you? No, you're too old, aren't you, to have an apophysis at the
2: <laughs>
1: proximal. Yeah. Um, so this is what. It, um, here's our ischium here. Uh, with a bony erosion, so that's the bone here, here's our tendon and the way it's lifted off the bone there and again the the telltale sign is the wavy tendon, there's lost tension through there, so there's an avulsion. They're reasonably easily surgically repaired with anchors and sutures and the interesting thing is you pull it medially, not so much proximally. They can be repaired quite late, David Wood in New South Wales has got a series of over a hundred and he's done some up to 12 months after injury. Um, that's the classic. I had a. That's the classic water, water, uh, water skiing injury, acutely pulled. And again, we can see a ten, bony avulsion, a big hematoma, and there's the retracted sort of muscle tendon complex in there. Is that the
3: one that
1: Chris Judd had? Uh, no, Chris actually had a proximal tendon. He didn't have an avulsion. Uh Richo, I think, might have had an avulsion. Matthew Richardson. Um I don't know, we probably Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> did you want to show any proximal
2: I can, yeah. yeah it's,
1: or, how, it's how fast it is, is it? Yeah we'll finish up, yeah. we'll finish up. I just I wanna finish so here's my guide to um to rehabilitation for hamstrings, early protected mobilization. So within a pain-free range, particularly we saw on Martine's scans, some of the images, how close the sciatic nerve is to the tendon. When you operate on them, they look the same almost. So you don't want to put a suture through the sciatic nerve. But there's often a lot of scarring involvement around the sciatic nerve. Um, we do inner range strength and activation. Um, we also strengthen other structures. The glutes are powerful extensors of the hip, Um, we graduate strength at length, we increase the speed of loading faster contractions, start running and we give them some elastic challenges bounding, catching, fast movements and sort of return to play. So there's a progression through that, protection early and then expose the tendon, muscle tendon to the stress it's going to need towards the end. there's a guy called Jan Lemur, a French guy who who does some fantastic so if you look at YLM sports science he does a lot of these infographics that really summarize um, papers and in a really nice graphical and this is the the determinants of return to play after non-operative management of hamstring injuries so stretching injuries are slow, they're slow in recreational level sports when there's damage Structural damage, so versus MRI negative, hamstring injuries, whatever they are. I'm not sure they're real, but the Germans certainly believe they are. Um, a loss of the active range of motion, if they delay a consultation. Um, if they've got severe pain, and if they take more than a day to walk, all of those are bad prognostic signs. If you're interested, there's a lot of stuff about health and activity in Jan, Jan's um Uh, infographics and they're really useful for giving to patients. Um, I just wanted a quick word about concussion, the ultimate soft tissue. Key point with concussion is recognition, removal and review. Um, It's an imaging talk, so when do we image them? Well really only if we think there's structural injury, particularly bony injury to the skull or a significant risk of bleeding. Incredibly rare in our football population. So. Recognition is the key, so if you watch Ben Stratton here with the ball. And there's some telltale signs, again we've got a video here. That didn't seem like much, and his brainstem's still working, he's trying to handball. Um, (laughs) He's not right, his player recognises he's not right, the umpire doesn't give a damn, but um, Poppy reckons something's a bit wrong. So, the whole movement was uncoordinated. Slow to get up, that's a key point. Watch his balance when he goes to get up. He stumbles. And Dan pretty quickly recognised. You know, vacant stare. He's coming off. This guy's concussed. That's a pretty easy one I guess. There are lots of variations but recognised you know, and Ruffy gets the ball to kick the goal. Good on him. Um, hmm. The AFL uses this head injury assessment chart and, and again this is about decisions on removal from play and this is made by a medical person, but in the community if there's any suspicion of any signs of concussion then take them off. And so when you've got a red box they're off, loss of, con- loss of con- consciousness, they don't protect themselves in the fall, they have a seizure, balance disturbance, dazed, They changes their behaviour. I remember Simon Prestigio Giacomo, Collingwood, being concussed at training one time and we knew because he was very friendly and effusive and talkative and that's not his personality. Um, confusion, disorientation, memory impairment, although the pain reports significant symptoms. Patient, uh, the player reports those. So they're observed, they're reported or they're on the video review. So we don't go to the next stage. We remove them from play. And then there are some, some grey ones. These have got yellow boxes. Loss of responsiveness, if they're motionless for a second. Not unconscious, but there's a question about that one. They might have had a bit of a seizure, but we don't know. They might have some balance disturbance. Or if anything, anyone's worried, then they come off and they do a SCAT-3 test. And so this is red, yellow, green, our traffic light system. And this is a, this is a so if you hear them on the commentary, what are they doing? We're running through this form, and we're checking these boxes. In fact, this gets submitted to the AFL for assessment of every case of concussion. So the point here is that we've got to recognise them, we've got to have an appropriate outcome, which is removal, and then they're reviewed medically. And they don't return to play until they're cleared medically. Um, That doesn't have to be a neurologist. One One of our colleagues did a survey amongst general practitioners at a certain clinic with a large number of general practitioners. Ask them what they do. A patient turned up on Monday. I was concussed on the weekend. What do you do? Send him back to casualty was a common response. That's not going to be very useful. They're not going to want to know you. Send him to see a neurologist. Well that'll be good in three months. By the time he has his appointment, he'll be recovered from his concussion. And a couple of them did follow the, the uh, concussion guidelines. And there's lots out there. And there's going to be a conference in There's going to be a conference in Zurich that's going to update all of the, in October that's going to update our findings, so watch for those early next year. And just in the Olympics theme, um, and finishing off, so thank you everyone.
0: Terrific, very good. Okay, well thank you very much Dr. Jowett, for uh, presenting, it was very good, very interesting. Did we learn anything this evening? Yeah, that was very good. Any Questions we need to finish off or just want to get home? Oh, you've had, no, no, you've had your share of questions. <laughs> Anyone else got any questions?
1: Okay, now you can ask a question. Okay. Yeah, so, well, the old definition of concussion was a transient disturbance of neurological <coughs> function. Headaches difficult in that field. If you go through this, the first part of a SCAT-3 test has a, has a symptom list and one of those symptoms is concussion. And so we will monitor those. Uh, one of those symptoms is a headache. And so we'll monitor. And so yeah, if someone's got a headache post-concussion, then we assume it's part of the concussion, they're not recovered. Yeah. Is it, is it dangerous to let them, you know, close their
0: eyes and uh, drift think, off? Thanks
1: for doing that. That's really good. I I that's good. That's no, good. that's, uh, that's an interesting live I yeah. often Trump mostly need a rest, those Trump. people. Trump, right, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they have any issue with their airways or the like. So. Yeah. Um,
2: this goes back to the start of the evening. I know that the um, research is that you load the tendons as
1: much as they tolerate and not stretch. So how come when you were treating a plain fascia like a tendon, you put them into dorsiflexion with your toes without stretching it under load? Good point. <laughs> oh, caught out, <laughs> caught out. Good point, you got me there. Um, it's not a, well, I think the embryology of the plantar fascia is really interesting. I think it was a tendon that's become a ligament. So when we were swinging from trees, it wasn't stuck to the back of the calcaneus. It was a tendon. It was a continu- continuity of the Achilles tendon. Now it's a ligament that goes from bone to bone. So I don't think it behaves entirely as a tendon. Um, Michael Raffliff's rehab program, I think, mostly works on the calf anyway. Um, so, yeah, I'll get away with that because of a different yeah,
0: structure. Okay, well, thank you. Well, I've A couple of special thanks before we finish. got to thank Jeremy here, who has been doing homework tonight. It's from that And we also must a very special thanks to Philips, who provided this, this lovely machine, which is brand new, and it's terrific. And uh, we, use, we only have Philips in our place, and for good reason, because they're, they're very good. They're the best. They're very good. So, and thank you to you, Martine, as well. You can have one? That's you can the, have yeah, You can no, keep no, that I one. I have up. to talk to Brett. <laughs> so, uh, so thank you very much. Um, very good. I think there's another evening. Pat, when's the next evening? It's uh, three or four weeks time?
1: Yeah. When's the next one? Pat? 14th
0: of September. 14th of September. So it's all very good. But, anyway, but thank you very much for coming along.